amplified. Peace and blessings, everybody. Welcome back to the Black and Privileged in America podcast. This is your brother, Jay Vodun. I'm here with my co-host, Abanam Hotep. Hey, everybody. So glad to be back in the studio. I know, right? It's been a wow. minute. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we have a we have a very special guest today. We have Iowa Democratic gubernatorial candidate, Miss Deidre Desjere. How are you yeah. doing today? I'm good. Hey, hey. I'm glad to be in here with you all. It's great to have you here. Been chomping at the bit to have this opportunity to kind of pick your brain and see where you're going with your, with your campaign. Let's pick it away. All right. <laughs> so there is a lot of buzz right now around your campaign and your contenders, but I want to not start there. I want to kind of back up. Mm-hmm. So Deidre, can you tell our audience about what motivated you to even get started into politics? What, what's your, where did you come from? Who are you? Let's just go from the very beginning. Sure. So uh, my mother died at a, when I was really young and she was young, she was about 34 years old and I was eight. She died about three days um, after my little sister was born. And my dad, who is the age I am now, just became a widower overnight. It was unexpected. And I had another sibling who was three years younger than me. And so at an early age, I just kind of had to grow up. And there were a lot of problems that were existing around me. And uh, um, I, I just became that person who tried to set out to solve problems wherever I could. And I was fortunate enough to have parents who really um, invested time and energy in me in such a way that they put me in the community to serve. I was born in a household that told me I wasn't born on this earth for me. I was born on this earth because I had something inside of me and my job was to push it out there to help other people. And and so as we look at this realm of policy and politics, um, our, our democratic um, fundamental, if you will, it gives us opportunity to, to problem solve, gives us opportunity to, to, to change things for the betterment of our community and sometimes for the worse. And, and so here we are looking at our country, looking at our state, seeing a great deal of challenges that everyday people are facing. Um, and policy is not standing up to the task specifically in this state. And uh, I, I want to be that problem solver that, that not necessarily puts the the burden of it, the problem simply on my back, but brings people together. So in a collaborative spirit, we can not only look at the challenges, but put paper, put, put pen to paper on the solutions and figure out what that looks like. So that, that's really, in, 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 you know, probably an elongated way to say my why. I want to serve, and, and policy is an avenue to do that. And there's a question right now that, that is, is being asked over and over, is democracy in peril? Well, democracy is dependent on the people. And if the people decide that it's not, then it's not. And I'm just a firm believer that based on everything that I'm seeing throughout our communities and throughout the state and this country, that the people are going to answer that question in 2022. And my hope is that democracy is not in peril, that it's alive and thriving. But we've got to garner on to that. Okay, that's 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 awesome. Um, I, I think that's one of the big issues that we have kind of going on uh, especially in the political spectrum is everybody's so divided mm-hmm. and the politics that we're experiencing are so divisive. And so here in Iowa, we're very, you know, I think we kind of lean probably slightly, you know, right of center in some areas and, and, and pretty, uh, 
you know, left-leaning in, in some the more metropolitan spaces. And so what kind of things, you know, what kind of policies are you going to focus on that, like, all Iowans can kind of, you know, wrap themselves around and kind of agree upon to kind of move us past the political divide? Because you know what? We don't all agree. That's just, I mean, we don't all agree. There is this great divide. I'm so interested in your answer to this question. So when we started out on this campaign prior to pushing play on running, I did an exploratory committee because I wanted to ask and answer two questions. One, could I be Iowa's next governor? Did I have the capability of, of, of bringing people together to, to get done what we need to get done? But I also wanted a path to victory as well. And those questions were asked and answered affirmatively, yes. And the reason being is because not only did we put together a committee, but I went on a conversation tour throughout the state. I started with small business owners and in our rural communities. And I asked the question, why do you live where you choose to live? Why aren't you anywhere else in this state? Why aren't you anywhere else in this country? And Iowans had amazing things to say about their communities. They value education. They love the, the size of their community. No matter where I went, urban, rural, or, or uh, suburban, everybody liked the size of their communities. They loved that they, they knew their neighbors and that they can meet people in the grocery store that have familiar faces. The other question that I asked to them was, where do you see need for improvement? Where do you see your communities growing five, ten years down the road? And everybody had very similar things to say. And so while we do have a lot of differences, the fact of the matter is, Iowans everywhere want a stronger education system in this state. Like, like we're, we're not talking about dreaming big right now. We're talking about basic fundamentals. This is a state 100 years before Brown versus Board of Education. We had desegregated schools. We didn't ask for permission from anybody. We, we, we value the fact that education should be afforded to anybody and everybody, no matter their gender, no matter their race. And, and that was started by an African-American man in this state. And, 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 and we went on to be number one in education. Now we're falling farther and farther down the list. And no Iowan that I talk to this can say, oh, I, I'm, I'm satisfied with the direction of education right now. No Iowan could say that. So we're coming together on that issue. Another issue that we're coming together on across the state is on mental health. You know, I'm, I'm in communities like Dubuque, and they're telling me they got to wait six months in order to see a psychiatrist. In fact, I even talked to um, a, a father, and, and his son called him uh, while he was at work. And his son was in high school, 17 years old, and said, Dad, I'm thinking about harming myself. And so this dad did what any good dad would do, got in the car, drove to his son, took him to the hospital. Doctor says, I'm sorry, we see a great deal of challenges going on with your son right now. Unfortunately, we can't get you in to see a psychiatrist for six months. And, and, and the next best thing was, was a psychologist in two months. And, and then he said, well, we, we've got a bed in, in Sioux City, six hours away. He can go to that bed. The state of New Hampshire has more mental health beds than the state of Iowa. We have less than 100 state beds and less than 1,000 uh, public and private beds throughout this state. And, and Iowans are coming to terms with that reality, and the state is perpetuating a crisis. We're coming together on that issue. The last issue that I'll say, and there's others that we're coming together on, but I'm still talking about these bread and butter issues, these fundamentals, because right now we've got to repair the foundation that exists in this state. 
Right now, it looks like an Iowa road in the wintertime, and we can do better than that. So that other fundamental issue is the future of our economy. We see wage loss. We see skills gaps. We see uh, uh, worker shortages. Our teachers are leaving the profession, and they're leaving this state. Our kids in our rural communities are leaving, vowing never to come back. Our population growth is flatlining. And everybody in this state knows if we're going to move forward economically, we have to grow. Needless to say, we've got a governor that's standing in the way of that. Let's talk about the policy. So how would your education policy um, improve the state of affairs in that regard versus what Governor Reynolds is currently doing in Iowa? Uh, we've got to look at, so when we talk about the skills gap and the worker shortages that exist in our state, our K-12 through program, unfortunately, is pushing off career preparation to um, other entities, like two-year institutions and four-year institutions. Our kids graduating out of high school have to be prepared to either start a career or go to college. It's not just about college preparation because there's a great deal of, 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 of uh, workforce um, gaps that we see right now that don't require a college degree. And so what I will do is look at our education system, bring people together so that we're, we're not only looking at the skills gaps and the worker shortages, but we're also modernizing our education system. The jobs of tomorrow are in robotics, artificial intelligence, STEAM in general. Our, our, K, our core programming, K through 12, has to be formulated in such a way that our kids are prepared for those types of jobs. There are very few, if any, artificial robotics coding classes taught in the state of Iowa right now. If a kid is going to participate in that, that's an extracurricular activity. Well, when I grew up, chess was an extracurricular activity. You know, and, and we know that 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 these other jobs related to robotics and artificial intelligence is, is bigger than chess is right now. To be honest, that's the future. The other thing that I think is incredibly important is, is that we're not only um, looking at our education system and advancing that, but we're also looking at the needs of the student in our education system. We've got to put social workers and mental health practitioners back in our schools. Our, our kids, and, and obviously this has been exacerbated by COVID, but it existed before, our kids are experiencing some mental health challenges in the, in the framework of, of the school. They're also experiencing at home, right? And, and they're bringing that to the school, and, and unfortunately, it's, it's creating a barrier for their success. And, and if we are to, to think about the, the future of our students, we got to make sure that we're adhering to the brain as well. And brain health is incredibly important. The last thing that I'll say is, is not only is it important to, to increase mental health availability and to reformat our education system and what we're, what we're asking our teachers to teach, um, but, but it's, it's so critical um, during a time where we, we are not putting uh, the educators at the forefront, putting them on the pedestal that, that, that they deserve to be in, I honestly believe we've got to listen to the educators and, 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 and pay our teachers their worth. They're working two and three jobs, and we're not giving them the resources that they need to be able to thrive in the classroom. And, and we've got to come to terms with that reality because without teachers, our education system is fundamentally flawed. Absolutely agree. Um, um, that, brings up, that brings me to a question about homeschooling. Mm -hmm. Homeschooling, if you're looking at the trends nationwide, particularly because of COVID, homeschooling is something, uh, it's up like three times 
from uh, the national average that it was even in 2019. And so one of the one of the issues that are being put forth in 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 the bill SB 3080 mm-hmm. is the Student First Scholarship Program, mm-hmm. and it's a program and an education savings account. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a program where where uh, parents will be able to uh, put funds aside for their children to embark on you know their secondary education. And so, what do you what do you think about the bill? And uh, if you have any other, you know, what would you add? What would you take away from the bill? You know, I, I think that uh, that bill is short-sighted. We have more than a half million students throughout this state. And with a flawed education system that's not meeting the modern-day needs to uh, prepare our kids for the jobs of tomorrow and or um, college opportunities and trade opportunities, uh, we're selling ourselves short. And what we should be focusing on is is uh, the, the bigger picture. I, I can understand why parents are interested in homeschooling their kids and, and why they, they, they may want school choice because they want to see a stronger education system. They see our system falling farther and farther down the list. That bill is not the end-all, be-all to resolving our education situation in this state because majority of the parents are not going to start homeschooling their kids. We have more than half a million kids in this state. We have to come to terms with the fact that our system has to be reimagined. And and that's how we strengthen education in this system. And that's what should be prioritized right now. Okay. And when you say, when you say reimagining the system, like what kind of things specifically would you do differently? Well, I talked about what I do differently related to mental health, related mm-hmm. to our curriculum, related to paying our teachers their value. Um, the those are those are core components of that. What I will say is that I'm a collaborative leader, mm-hmm. and during this process, these ideas and and how we resolve the challenges facing these everyday issues that Iowans are facing are not just coming out of my head; they're coming out of Iowans' heads. So we have created some policy teams right now, and education is one of those mental health, healthcare. Um, rural development, uh, there's quite a few others. And so as it relates to education, these groups are looking at the harm that's been caused in our state and putting pen to paper on some best practices. Some of those best practices have been derived in this state, in small communities. And, and, and we can expound upon those lessons and, and recreate that for the entire state. There's other best practices that we're going to have to get, you know, throughout our region because we may not see some of the things that are happening in the state truly resolving those issues. And so that's, that's how I like to lead. And, right, so that this is a part of the campaign, and it's not going to end with a campaign. These groups of individuals, Iowans, you know, adding value from both lived experiences and professional experiences will be a part of my team in, in the governor's office as well. But but once we get through this phase of having our policy teams meet, that's when we'll start rolling out policies, not only for education, but all of the policy platforms that I have for this campaign and, and how I'll lead as governor. Okay. Um, I just want to push back against uh, one little thing you said, um, like I have a I have a fourteen year old, mm-hmm. and he's been obviously everybody's child has experienced some sort of uh, let's say they've been uh, kind of held back a little bit by COVID as far as 
um, in in school, you know, in person learning is just it's just not the same. And so, I I do understand about having plans and policy teams in order to improve upon you know what needs to be improved upon, but between you know, and those things I, I understand will be a process. But for right now, for my 14-year-old, you know, if, if I am happy with his education where he's at currently in school, but for those parents who are not happy with the education that their young child is experiencing, it's particularly young African-American, African-American males, the experiences that they are currently having in school and how they're languishing, um, how – what in what way will you be able to address these things in the meantime? You know, from an executive, there are things that you can do yeah. from an executive standpoint where you'll be able to address some of these deficiencies in the meantime, particularly for you know disenfranchised communities. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So our state is sitting on um, nearly two billion dollars in surplus, and those what unfortunately the Republicans are saying right now is that that rainy day fund is now a trust fund from their vantage point. I'm of the mindset that you have to be in a position of privilege uh, to have a trust fund. And the state of our education system and then the mental health crisis that Iowans are facing, we are not in a position of privilege. We are, it's raining and we have to use those resources. And so putting social workers and mental health practitioners back in the schools, I think is going to, to add tremendous value to the challenges that students are facing. I not only want to do that in our high schools, but I also want to do that um, in K through eight. And I also want to help ensure that our higher education institutions are tooled to do that as well. I was just, just at University of Iowa a couple of weeks ago when we were, you know, mental health doesn't always come up in a conversation among students, but it came up in this conversation with students and they're troubled. Uh, especially our young students that had to live their senior year through COVID and now all of a sudden college, they're still in it. They're isolated. They're experiencing a great deal of mental health challenges. And uh, an individual walked up to me at the end and said, I'm glad that we talked about mental health because, you know, three weeks into my semester, I called to go see someone and I couldn't. They were booked for the whole year. And so that's one thing that we can do most immediately. There are some policies related to curriculums and, and, and how we create pathways for K through 12 to work with our community colleges and to work with our, our, our trades and, and to also work with um, our, our four-year institutions. That's what I talk about when I mean about policy, how we technically make this happen. But we know the overarch approach, what we need to accomplish. We also need to lower the suspension rate for black males, especially in our urban centers. Um, and, and part of that comes with alleviating some of the pressure off of our teachers, paying them more, and also increasing their access to training. Um, and, and then the last thing that I'll say for our babies that are experiencing some challenges right now, learning loss, because our, our, our young ones, uh, you know, in, in fifth garden, in, in kindergarten and pre-K, we've got to give parents more than 10 hours of pre-K a week. Um, and so when I'm governor, we're going to work towards 30 uh, because it's so incredibly important for, for our toddlers to have uh, an, an opportunity to, to not only work towards um, access to child care, but, but they need to be learning. And, and this state, unfortunately, is not giving our parents enough access to child care. We've lost 40% of our providers, and we're also not getting the access to, to pre-K that we need. And so we need to ex- increase that as well. When you talk about um, 
reducing the suspension rates yeah. for children, um, predominantly black boys. What do you what in your mind is the problem and then what specifically can be done to address it? Because I know increasing teacher pay may or may not um, impact their point of view about black children. So what can be done really to mitigate um, black boys being suspended at disproportionate rates? And and the reason why I mentioned increased teacher pay is is because we're one of the lowest um, related to teacher pay in the country. And our teachers are having to work two and three jobs to make ends meet. And so they're bringing their trauma, their experiences, their crises within the classroom. So the way that we mitigate that, not only for teachers, but anybody in the workforce is increased pay because this state has a terrible minimum wage. Minimum wage has to be lifted. But we also have to, especially in our public platforms where I have a little bit more leverage is to make sure that those folks aren't as distracted. But the other part of that is increasing the awareness and the access to training so that they're they're learning. We know that that in communities like Des Moines, it's increasingly becoming more and more diverse. Um, and, and we don't necessarily um, – we're not giving the teachers the or even the districts the resources that they need to actually make sure that they're meeting the needs of the children with the training. Um, the other thing that I think is important is that we have to increase diversity amongst our teachers uh, throughout the state. Um, and that means we have to make way for college affordability um, and for them to be able to pay those loans back uh, so that they can actually acquire these jobs um, and, 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 and not have to break the bank to pay student loans. And so one of the things that, that happens in a few of the districts throughout the state is a loan forgiveness program. But I want a loan forgiveness program for the entire state for teachers who go to college in the state of Iowa and are committed to teaching in this state for seven years. That's incredibly important to me. It's, it's not a, a, a new idea. It's an idea that's been utilized in this state before and it helped bring not only diversity to the classroom but it increased people's interest in this trade when I talk about our teachers leaving our teachers are leaving we have superintendents that are teaching classes we have schools that have had to close down because they didn't have enough teachers we have to interrupt this because before it comes a crisis but unfortunately the bill that Jay just mentioned doesn't address that and we have to address that first. So, okay, CRT, mm. what are your thoughts? It's not taught in this state. It's, it's a perpetual political tool that we see being replicated throughout this entire country. And it's a fear tactic. Again, rather than talk about what's actually taught in the schools and, and increase and strengthen what is taught in the schools in efforts to prepare our students for those future jobs. We're talking about a figment of Iowa's imagination, critical race theory, something that's not even taught. And so I don't spend a lot of time on it, um, unfortunately, because it is something, it's one of those bills that, unfortunately, our government, our governor allowed to come through this state, a bill that was basically copy and pasted and was utilized throughout the entire country. 
one of those bills that wasn't good for Iowa. We also saw voting rights bills, voter restriction bills like that. Um, We saw choice bills like that. Um, We see one bill like that as it relates to transgender students who who want to play sports. And so we we, these are those copy and paste approaches, those Republican national platform agendas that that they're hoping are going to stoke fear in folks. And so rather than give that stuff oxygen, we got to talk about what exists. We got to talk about the priorities that are happening in this state and the lack of prioritization that's coming from the governor's office. Jay, you know, the the CRT conversation did have an effect on the Virginia gubernatorial race. Can you talk about that? Well, and that's that was that's as I hear you speak on the on on the topic, I, I do understand where you're coming from as far as not giving the not giving not giving oxygen to what you would consider to be unnecessary uh political arguments. Mm-hmm. However, in this state, half the state believes that CRT is being taught in schools, and even if it's not CRT in name, they still have a, a particular disposition towards what they consider to be things like CRT, such as social-emotional learning, and and even uh, with, like, with transgender legislation. These things do matter to folks in Iowa regardless of how, you know, regardless of politically how divisive these conversations are, we still have to have them with people who disagree with us. So in the event that you're looking to get a bill passed, you still have to deal with those guys who say, hey, they're teaching, they're bringing CRT into our schools. These narratives are pervasive and on the other side of the political spectrum throughout the state. So how will you how will you get things done dealing with these individuals who have these dispositions in a collaborative way so you're so i i i draw a line between how we work throughout a campaign and and how i lead as governor um, you know, as Democrats, there's a lot of collaboration that happens over the course of campaigns, but Democrats don't typically collaborate with the other side over the course of a campaign. We've seen what it looks like when people fight to the death to prove a point, to to correct the facts or the mis uh, um, mention of, of truth um, on the other side. We saw that in the 2016 election. We saw it in the 2020 election. And I don't believe it advanced us very much farther than we could have gone because we spent so much time trying to correct their record. What I want to do during this time is invest time in Democrats and independents, um, who are aligned and, and who, who have shared interests. Now, if Republicans want to be a part of that, they are welcome because the Democratic Party is one that is the party with the big tent. And we're going to show people what that looks like over the course of this campaign. But rather than invest my time and energy into proving a point, I'm investing my time and energy into fighting for common ground. So rather than talk about what's not taught in the schools, let's talk about what is taught in the schools and if it's meeting the needs of this workforce crisis. If it isn't meeting the needs of this workforce crisis, what will? 
what can we teach in our schools that will meet the needs of our workforce crisis. This, unfortunately, this administration has been about restrictions. It has been about repercussions. It has been punitive in nature. When my dad was counseling me when I was trying to figure out who I was going to date and when I was going to date him, he said, when you find a man, make sure he adds value to your life, not takes away. Government's job is to add value to the fabric of our state and our communities. And having a conversation about critical race theory does not add value. Now, if someone during the course of me governing wants to talk about that, yes, because democracy is is not simply the end-all, be-all isn't the vote. It's what happens behind closed doors, the compromise, the consensus building. Yes, we do that then. But I want Iowans to be clear about the fact that critical race theory is, is a ploy. And, and, and I know Iowans value more about the future of their education system because they value the future of our students more than they do about critical race theory. I want to just jump in quick because as I was doing some reading on critical race theory um, and Dr. Derek Bell, Professor Derek Bell, who is one of the authors of the theory, I was reading and it was really more of a of an indictment against liberal politics than it was against conservatism. And so just with that understanding and then reflecting upon how often marginalized communities have been let down by by Democrats and liberal politics and. Um, you know, the, the campaign promises, let's just go national. So our presidential election, and then I'll bring it home. So in our president, presidential election, we uh, uh, marginalized communities were promised things as, you know, that's the nature of campaigning. You know, there are promises made, but not seeing promises kept. And that's been a theme, mm-hmm. not just on the Democrat side, but that it's a theme that sure. resonates deeply um, on on the liberal side. And so the theory of critical race um, is an indictment of that sort of action. And so I think that is something that is often misconceived in those mm. conversations. Um, so I don't know. I, I hear you and I, I respect your, your, your position, but I wonder what can you do to make sure that uh, marginalized communities are not going to be let down if you win the election. So I think that's where we 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 really talk about our value in democracy, because campaign promises isn't necessarily um, a uh, a cornerstone of democracy. That is what people have utilized to get in. As a black woman. My success has not been predicated on my promises, but predicated on my outcomes in everything that I've done, Uh, whether I was working on a campaign, working as a small business owner, a consultant for organizations that 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 live and thrive off of outcomes. That is what I'm conditioned to do is to ensure that we look at a problem and we set out goals to resolve that problem and we put data on the table so everybody is clear about where we end, right, and that we have a true path to get there. And, and so I can't speak for other people who, who committed to doing things and, and haven't um, held their end of the bargain. But what I can speak to is the way I like to lead is focusing on the outcome. So when we sit together, despite all of our differences, we're sitting together to focus on a common goal. 
very similar. At the beginning of the pandemic, um, we knew very early on that many of our small businesses, especially in Iowa, our marginalized communities, our underrepresented small businesses, were not going to get access to the resources that they needed to thrive. Very few minorities got access to PPP dollars in this state. Very few minorities got access to even the state funds. Knowing that was going to be an issue, rather than beating down the door to, to get what we knew was going to be very challenging to get, we brought together 14 organizations organizations that don't typically work together for the listeners, banks and credit unions. If y'all are in the financial sector, they don't always get along. We brought together four-year institutions and community colleges. And then we brought together diverse organizations that represented Bosnians, refugees, blacks, Latinx community. Uh, and, and, and all of that was an effort to ensure that small businesses were going to thrive throughout the, the pandemic. And they were able to raise collectively nearly half a million dollars. And, imp and that impacted more than a, a, a hundred businesses throughout the state. Not only did they get access to money, they got access to business coaching. They got access to financial coaching. Now, all of those organizations may never, ever come together on another issue in the way in which they did because of their disagreements and because of their, you know, their, their, their own paths, the, 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 the things that they're trying to achieve, the missions and, that they're trying to accomplish. But they did for that moment, and it helped people. That is what government is supposed to do. And, and so while we can talk about the differences, it, it, that's, that's important because we, we, we can learn through our differences. But when it comes down to problem solving, we also got to keep, keep our eye on the prize, what we share in common. Um, because that, I mean, that's the part of democracy that nobody really gets to see anymore. Speaking of democracy, do you believe that um, the actions that took place in Washington, D.C. on January the 6th, of last year are possible in Iowa. We've seen um, all kinds of points of view be elevated in the last couple of years with the pandemic. I think the, pan the pandemic gave people an opportunity to sit and think about what's important to them and their values. And um, then with the murder of George Floyd, I think that that um, opened a lid that had been somewhat closed Kinda. It wasn't closed. That jar was, was never closed. closed. No. It's always been racist. But do you think it's possible for January 6th to happen in Iowa? And what would you say to anyone who has those ideologies? Or, I mean, because I think it's important to speak to difference. There are so many things. I, th I believe, first of all, we have more in common than we have different. But difference is loud. And so what would you say to those people to galvanize them, if at all possible, and to get them to see that, you know, you would be a champion for all? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the number one thing is just to be my authentic self. I can't be anybody but me. And my authentic self sets out to serve everybody, despite the political differences, despite any other differences that, that may exist between me and the other person. You know, I'm running for governor not just to be governor of a select few. That's what we have right now. I'm running for governor to govern everybody in this state, to lead everybody in this state towards a more prosperous future. We've been sold on this mission that you've got to rob Peter to pay Paul, and and I don't prescribe to that. I believe you got to make sure Peter's good, Paul is good, and Paul is good. 
And, and that is possible. That is possible, but it, it means bringing people together at the problem-solving table that, that have an added advantage in, in helping us understand not only the problem, but how we resolve it and mitigating any unintended consequences there. And so, um, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think in the way that I see Iowa that, that something like that is possible in this state. Um, but what I can tell you that's possible is that Iowa has been tested um, several times in our past, despite the, the, the overwhelmingly majority of whites that we see in the state. We talked about Brown versus Board of Education, you know, while the rest of the country was trying to figure out who should marry who, Iowa said marry who you choose and pass marriage equality. And in a state like this, a black woman like me can be the first African-American to be nominated for a statewide office. And so I know what this state is capable of. And, and this election, while it may somewhat be a referendum on whether or not democracy is in peril, it, it's also an opportunity for Iowa stand, to stand as it all, has always. I mean, it, with a majority white state, we send a signal throughout this entire country that the next president of the United States should be a black man. And the rest of the country heard that. So we've always been leaders. And, it, and it's time for us to rise back up to the occasion and remind ourselves of what we're capable of. And unfortunately, this leadership, as you started out in this podcast, has, has wedged a gap between us. And, and honestly, us being in this vulnerable state is better for her because she can drive her political agenda all throughout each and every one of our 99 counties. And it will add zero value to the fabric of the future of the state. Or we can interrupt it right now and we can elect somebody that that one believes in people and believe that we can overcome these challenges. And that's where I stand right now. And I think that it's possible. And, 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 I, 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 and my thought is not just predicated on the past. The numbers are there. The numbers are there. And um, we, we, we have a governor who's ranked 44th in the country. She only won with 50.3% of the vote. And, and so I can spend time trying to say, hey, she's beatable, or I can organize. I can get on the road. I can talk to everybody throughout this state who's willing to, to see their communities thrive. That authenticity is key. As, you, as you've traveled around the state and you've, and you've spoken to people, what, outside of the, the few you know, core issues that we've spoken on, what other uh, issues are Iowans telling you that need to be addressed most specifically, you know, day one when you get in the office? Good question. If Voting rights is a big thing. <laughs> Voting rights is is a huge thing for folks. Um, another thing, you know, we talk about the kids leaving our rural communities and, and vowing never to come back. We're, we're seeing the effects of that. Um, when I'm in our communities of color, our black communities, it's talking about increase in wages. We know in Polk County, Blacks make $30,000 less as a family than all of Polk County, like $36,000 total. That's not enough to make ends meet. I'm talking to child care workers. The average uh, that they make is $26,000. Uh, we're also talking about environmental justice, clean water. Everybody wants clean water, whether they're in urban Iowa or rural Iowa. Everybody wants clean water. They want to make sure that this land, this soil that we have, um, is 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 kept in such a way better than we we received it, but we've got to have those tables that come together. Um, other things that that folks are talking about um, is collective bargaining. 
You know, our corrections officers don't have the bargaining rights as our police officers. And and we've got to fix that. Our teachers are powerless. Um, we also see uh, folks uh, having issues with, if, they, if they're a displaced worker, getting the education to up their skills so that they can get another job. Those are just some of the things that, that we hear people talking about. Um, and, and there's more. There's more. But the... the what I can say is that people are hungry. People are hungry. They just need a reason to come to the table. And and our job in this campaign is to give them that reason. So it takes a lot of resources to run a campaign, um, to, to, to beat an incumbent. Um, and lately in the news, they're talking about the difference between funding um, on um, – Governor Reynolds' campaign, she's accumulated millions and then the funding that you have. Mm -hmm. What resources do you need and how do you plan to get there and how are what can your constituents do to support you? Right now, anybody and everybody throughout this country can go to DeGereForIowa.com and contribute. Campaigns cost money. And um, our, our current governor has a war chest right now. Um, but we've seen other campaigns with war chests that weren't quite so successful. We know right now not only do we need resources, but we need people power. And uh, you can also go to our website to volunteer, to get engaged. Not only do we have policy teams, we have our constituency teams for our African-American communities, our African communities, Latinx, LGBTQ, AAPI, disabilities, and I'm probably missing one, our students. Um, those groups people can join as well. And these groups are not only folks that are going to help us better connect to their respective communities. We're also asking them to look at our policies. And we're saying, look, look at this policy for education. How does this policy impact the black community? How does this policy impact the AAPI community, the, the LGBT community? Because we want those voices um, a part of the table. But needless to say, I, I, I honestly believe that, that what I'm feeling on the ground and what I'm seeing on the ground and what we saw in these past school board and city council races, people are up for this fight. You know, we've been talking a lot about policies. That doesn't happen until I get in office. I can't do the work until I'm there. Before we do the work, we've got to put up a fight. And Iowans have done harder things than beat Kim Reynolds. You know, we got folks that are barely making ends meet, but they're making a meet. They're, 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 they're meeting the needs of their family. We've got folks that are having health care issues, but they're making it work, right? Like, we've done so many more things that are tougher than what Kim Reynolds has given us right now, but we've got to put in the work and get people engaged in this process, help people understand that we can do this. Collectively, we can do this, and not only can we, we got to be willing. I know that you are a person who... Um, loves people and and all of that but as you said earlier you are a black woman mm -hmm. and a lot of black people are going to be saying okay I'm gonna vote for her because she's black and I hope she does something for black folks mm -hmm. I want to know what are you going to do for black people there's entrepreneurship there's all these other issues that you've mentioned but what are you going to do for black people black Iowans so when you're creating policy the job of, of creating policy to impact the community is to make sure that you are inclusive in your, when you're developing those communities. And so one of the things that I think that's incredibly important 
um, as it relates to my small business outreach policy. Obviously, I'm a small business owner, and and and, and small businesses provide jobs for more than 50% of the workforce in Iowa. I want 15% of all Iowa, the state of Iowa spending, to go towards our targeted small businesses. I want to make sure that there is an avenue for us to connect to our targeted small businesses, That's and that's inclusive of our black businesses. I also want to make sure that we're increasing the availability of small business development in our urban centers that better connect blacks to these types of services that, that not only are going to help them become a, a, a small business owner, but also help their, their business grow. I also want to increase the availability of low-interest um, loans for our black community as well. And the, the reason why I say that is because um, we know the challenges that blacks have related to our finances. Over 50% of Iowans in Polk County that are black are un, under or unbanked. That means it's going to be very challenging for them as business owners to go and get a conventional loan. Well, the state has the availability to make sure that we're targeting these types of loans to businesses that can't get access to conventional loans. The other thing that's important is that we've got to increase wages throughout the state. Um, the last thing that I'll say is that we have to increase the availability of housing. We see so many of our black populations, again, in Polk County, 70% of blacks rent their homes compared to 30% of all uh, of Polk County. We know that home ownership is an opportunity for folks to plan for their future and to build generational wealth. And when you see 70% of African-Americans lacking one of the most prominent assets that they could possibly have that, that could help them back something, uh, grow their business or, 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 or save for um, their kids' school, so on and so forth, we've got to figure that out. And we know that Iowa is lacking more than 50,000 units throughout this state and um, housing units, and we'll need about 47,000 more over the next 10 years. So we have to invest in housing. I'm going to be that governor that creates pathways for business ownership in the construction trade, but I'm also going to be that governor to make sure when we have bid opportunities open, we're looking at Iowa businesses first before we're looking outside of the state of Iowa. And so those are the few things. And so you most of my policies, well, all of my policies that we'll be coming out with will, will be inclusive of the lens of a variety of communities to make sure we're looking at the challenges. Because we can't just say we have a small business ownership challenge if we're not looking at the intersections that exist, if we're not disaggregating the data across the board and looking at the, the, the issues there. The same way we're talking about uh, black suspension rates. We could just look at suspension rates across the board and be like, oh, okay, we're good. But when we look at our black boys, they're three times more likely to be suspended. We've got to fix that. So that's kind of how I look at the problem and then put a solution to it. Deidre Dejir, everybody, we appreciate you coming on the Black and Privileged in America podcast hey, and Black sharing and your views with us. This has been great. Hopefully we can have you back on. Absolutely. Would y'all have me back on? Absolutely. Yay. We'd love to. Yeah, that's exciting. Uh, this was a very good conversation. I'm glad that we were able to talk more about policy. Now, I want people to remember they can join our policy teams because it's going to take a village for us to overcome many of the challenges that we see Iowa facing. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll see y'all next time. Peace.